This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Johan Hari, welcome to Better Reading, or welcome back to Better Reading. I'm so happy to be up with you. So I was just saying before we started, but last time we spoke, I said to you, recommend a really great Australian novel to me, and you recommended Dirt Music by Tim Winton, and I read it on the flight back, and I Uh, cried so much that the air stewardess literally asked me if I was okay. So I'm eternally in your debt. I love Australian (laughs) fiction anyway, but... I particularly loved that novel, so thank you so much. I don't know if you know this, but this is what we do. We recommend books, so I might recommend a few today. <laughs> Nothing uh, makes me happier than when someone recommends. I've read like five Australian books in the last year that were amazing. Have you read um, Mark McKenna's book, Return to Uluru? No, I haven't. <gasps> oh okay, well, that's a recommendation I know I'm meant to talk about my own book. But oh, no, no. Oh, my God. Love- this, so... You don't want to know too much going in, but in, it's a history book, but it's it's astonishing. It's like a kind of true crime book. In 1937, a white police officer shot and killed an Aboriginal man just outside Uluru. And at the time, it was highly contested what happened. And basically, Mark McKenna, after all these years, proves what actually happened. And by the end, he has definitively figured out what happened. And it's this incredible story about Australian history, about, I I mean, it's really an extraordinary book. Like, I really, and one of the best novels I've read, I reread an an incredible book called The Natural Way of Things by Charlotte Wood, which I'm sure you've read. I interviewed her the other day and she lives just down the road and I see her husband almost every morning in the park. I love Charlotte. So I've met her. I met her in, I met her, because I love that book so much. I met her last time I was in Australia and I subsequently read uh, loads of her books. But she's, oh, I love her. And the natural way of things is such a disturbing and strange book. Yeah. I really love it. Do you um, know what strikes me with her and with a lot of writers? And I've learned this over the four years of this podcast is her gentleness as a person comes through. Mm. Isn't that lovely when you're reading fiction that that happens? That's so interesting, isn't it? Because so often you want writers to be good people and then you meet them and they're awful. (laughs) That does happen, yeah. Well, you think about how often, like like one of my favourite writers, Evelyn Waugh, or you think Mm. about Céline, the great French Mm. writer, these incredibly sensitive writers and yet like monsters as people, cruel, vicious. And Charlotte is one of those people who's as good and admirable as you as her mm. writing, which mm. not, that makes her writing sound like it's sort of wishy-washy or virtuous. It's not at all. It's very earthy and very raw and very challenging, actually. But she, you're right. Uh, she's one of those writers whose brilliance comes in part from her goodness. Mm. It's not necessary to be a great writer. Celine was as evil as a person could be. He wrote, uh, when the Nazis invaded and took over France, he wrote an angry pamphlet complaining that the Nazis were too soft on the Jews, right? He was as 
as yeah. wicked as a human being can be. Yeah, well, and yet an extraordinarily great writer. Mm. But yeah, no, Charlotte is definitely in that category. The opposite category is Selena, mm. you know, brilliant writer, but also a good person. I feel that writers and readers, and you'll probably have a, a view on this, there is a certain amount, because our audience, like, you know, we reach about 500,000 readers a day. And I've got to tell you, we've got a Facebook page that has over 300,000 likes. Largely, I would say 99.9%. They are mm. people that are interested, people with empathy, people who want to know more they're respectful to each other. And I find even with authors, like, you know, in the last four years, I've spoken to hundreds of authors and I've got to say maybe two weren't very good. Well, oh, you lovely. have to tell me who that, will you tell me who they were <laughs> off camera? You, have, you can't tantalise me with I that, will. right? I, I will. But mostly <laughs> I think writers like readers have empathy. Well, this is something I learned about a lot because one of the, obviously I wrote this book about how we're living in an attention crisis, right? So, the average college student now focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. Mm, the mm. average office worker now focuses on any one task for just three minutes. Mm. We can see the effects of this attention crisis playing all around us. I'm sure we're going to talk about lots of elements of it. I became convinced by traveling all over the world, including to Australia, where some of the most important interviews were, uh, and interviewing over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. I became convinced this is a very real crisis that we urgently need to deal with. And there's many reasons, but one of them, and one of the ones that was most intimate to me, is about reading books. Mm -hmm. With each year that passes for many people, reading books is more and more like running up a down escalator, right? Mm -hmm. Some people are still getting to the top of the down escalator, but it's getting harder and harder to maintain that focus and attention. And what we lose when we lose the ability to read books is so profound. It's our ability to engage with complexity. It's our ability to engage deeply with the inner life of another person in a still and centered way. It's so important. So one of the, what I learned is there's in fact scientific evidence for 12 different factors that are profoundly degrading our attention. But one of those 12 factors is the collapse of sustained reading, which is of course, in some ways, a symptom of the attention crisis but also a cause of the attention crisis because reading trains you to think in deep, linear, empathetic ways. And so I go, we can talk a lot more about this if you like, but I think you're absolutely right. And that's why the work you're doing is so important and why it doesn't surprise me that you may have the only crevice of the entire internet where people are being nice to each other mm -hmm. because, and there's a really fascinating guy, you should have him on your your show, a really interesting guy called Professor Raymond Marr, who I interviewed in Toronto, mm -hmm. who did this huge breakthrough research. I can talk about the mechanism of how he proved it if you like, but he proved that reading fiction enhances your empathy. Mm -hmm. To a lot of people who are deep readers, that seems like a no shit Sherlock kind of insight, right? But he was, it's really important. His research proved that. And that's one of the reasons why losing the ability to read books along with, I mean, that's one of many symptoms of our attention crisis, why that is so, so disastrous and, and so coarsening for the, the wider society and culture. When COVID hit, 
And I know that your book goes beyond that. But when COVID hit, I decided I was going to do a little series on a few writers and I wanted to talk to them about the impact of COVID on their lives and on their writing lives. Because some authors were saying to me, oh, well, it's not really affecting me because I don't go out anyway, you know. I (laughs) I write in a room, you know. But one of them was Petey Carey from New York. What a great writer. I know. I know you want to live my life. I know you want to live my life. (laughs) I'm so jealous. Damn it. <laughs> and anyway, so he was he generously agreed. And one of the things that he said to me very, very early on in the podcast, and you can go back and listen to it, was he lost his concentration for reading fiction because he's so distracted. Then this is when New York was hit really, really hard. So early on. And so he took to short stories. So that phenomenon that he's experiencing relates to one of the 12 big factors that's causing such a degradation in our attention and has been particularly acute under COVID. I was really helped to understand this when I went to interview an amazing woman called Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's now the Surgeon General of California, the most senior medical officer in the whole state. And Nadine explained to me, so imagine one day you're attacked by a bear and you survive. As you go back to your normal life, something will happen to your attention. Involuntarily, you can't help it. You will start, it's called vigilance. You will start scanning the horizon for risks and dangers that could come out of the blue because you've experienced a danger out of the blue. Your brain just starts going, you know what? You've got to, don't worry so much about this book you've got to read. Don't worry so much about how you're going to pay the rent. Scan the horizon for risk and danger. And you will spend a lot of your mental energy doing that. Now imagine you were attacked by a bear again, right? Then you will go into a state that's known as hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is when your attention flips from studying the things that are right in front of you or you know, thinking deeply to constantly scanning for risks and dangers, right? Now, that's not, um, that is a form of attention. It's attention to potential risk and danger. I think one of the things that's happening in COVID, particularly at this stage in the pandemic, when we're like, oh my God, another wave, is we're in a state of hypervigilance, right? It, and a wonderful Australian, Dr. John Giardini, who is a child psychiatrist I interviewed in Adelaide, said to me, he, he does a lot of work with uh, traumatised children who are much more likely to be, and children under pressure who are much more likely to be diagnosed with attention problems. And he said to me, look, paying close, detailed attention is a really smart strategy when you're safe, right? Sitting down and reading a book, it'll help you grow, it'll help you develop. But it's a really dumb strategy if you're in danger. You'd be a very foolish person who sat at the Battle of the Somme reading a novel, right? You would die, right? So actually, deep focus is something we can only bring when we feel at least somewhat safe. This is why increased stress at work, for example, leads to decreased ability to pay attention. I went to a place in New Zealand that had massively solved this problem. We can talk about that if you like. But it's why nobody should be feeling. I remember at the start of the pandemic when all my friends and everyone we were saying, oh, this is great. I'm going to read War and Peace. I'm going to, you know, there was this huge wave of optimism about what we were going to do. And no one read War and Peace, right? No, the, you know, no. Tolstoy has never been less read. <laughs> because when you feel in danger, you're triggered to that vigilant and hypervigilant state. Mm. Well, how this podcast came about this morning, you missed the time. I went to boxing. I'm so sorry. No, I want to touch on boxing. And, you know, we we talked about that just before we hit record. But when I started, and I told you how I started boxing because of the pandemic and because I couldn't get to Pilates, for the first couple of sessions, I just felt so uncoordinated. But it wasn't about physical coordination 
boxing is about mental coordination. And for 30 minutes, I have to listen to instructions and I have to. Mm. And do you know, that's a discipline in itself. And why Mm. did I struggle with that? It took me, I reckon it took me three to six months to really finally get it. You're in a zone. You're somewhere else. And it's just like, it's like reading, I guess, in a way. But I did think this is good for me at this time because I'm finding it really hard to concentrate on anything. I was so worried about the pandemic. And That's so, so interesting. And yeah. And you come to another one of the contributions. So the last quarter of my book, Stolen Focus, because the core thesis of the book, what I came to believe after interviewing all these experts, is that our attention has not collapsed. Our attention has been stolen from us Mm. by these big forces. And the last quarter of the book, or about 20%, is about our kids. This is particularly disastrously playing out for our children. And there's one aspect, so children's attention, there's been an enormous explosion in diagnoses of children not being able to pay attention. For every one child who was diagnosed with ADHD when I was seven, there are now a hundred children diagnosed that way in Britain and Australia. And I want to think about what's happening because this collapse, this apparent collapse in attention, this huge increase in these diagnoses has happened at the same time as some really profound transformations in childhood. And one of them is we let our children physically run around and exercise far less than they used to. Mm. And the evidence is very clear, physical exercise. Professor Joel Nigg, who's the leading expert on children's attention problems in the United States, talked to me about this. This is the single best thing that you can do for children's brains, physical running around, exercise. We are the first society ever to think it's possible to make children sit still for eight hours a day. It's bonkers. It's a crazy way of thinking about how children want to be or should be. You know, I read that um, in your book, and I don't know about you, you, you're a lot younger than me, but we used to go out in the morning and we'd have to be home by dinner in the summer holidays. We'd go out and play. You know, we'd go out and create. We'd go out and make believe. Now everybody has to watch their kids 24-7. They can't even go out into the backyard on their own. But this transformation has been devastating for the development of attention and focus right at the start of human life. And I tell this story through the story of an amazing woman I got to know called Lenore Skenazi. When Lenore was five, she grew up in a suburb of Chicago. She'd leave home on her own. She'd walk out of her front door and she'd walk to school, which was 15 minutes away. She'd generally meet up with the other kids in the neighborhood. They would walk together, but they were all without adults. They would arrive at school. They'd walk through the gate. There was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to be the lollipop man to help them cross the street. They'd go into the school and then they'd leave on their own at three o'clock and they would wander around the neighborhood for a few hours, play games, make up their own games, and then find their way home when they were hungry. Now, if you saw a five-year-old child in the street on their own, a lot of people call the police, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the time Lenore's, Lenore had her own kids in the 90s, um, she was living in Queens in New York. By then, the transformation you're describing had been complete. Children never played outdoors in, in it's slightly better in Australia, but only slightly in the United States, only 10% of children, this pre-pandemic, ever play outdoors without adults, ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what's happened is ch- childhood has been imprisoned, but children develop attention. The evidence is very clear, primarily through play. Right. What we think about when Lenore was in that neighborhood, just wandering around after school, they would just invent their own games. What are you learning? Mm -hmm. You're learning 
how to communicate with other people. You're learning how to make things happen. You're learning um, how to how, how to regulate your attention, how to regulate your, you know, you might lose the game. You have to learn how to regulate your anger. You're learning a whole suite of things. This is one of the factors, the way our school works is another, schools work is another, technology is another, the way we eat is another, which is really damaging our kids' ability to focus and pay attention. And you're seeing that a whole series of really big social changes that have happened. I remember saying to Professor Nig, if you were in charge of the society and you wanted to ruin people's attention, what would you do? And he said, I'd do pretty much what we're doing right now. Oh, he, he said that we've created what he called yeah, an yeah. attentional pathogenic environment in which it is extremely hard for, it's getting harder for everyone to develop a sense of focus and attention. And it was really, and we can talk about lots of the very specific ways this is playing out for adults and, and crucially what we can do about it. Because look, just to think about the childhood example there, Lenore has been the pioneer of an amazing program called letgrow.org, which I really recommend people look up and people should set up in Australia very simple. They go to schools because they realize, look, you can't solve that problem on your own. If you're the only person who sends your kid out to play, you know, you just look like a mad person and the child doesn't like it. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they go to schools and they persuade the parents to, as a group, give their children a little bit more freedom and independence. For example, I went to several schools in Long Island with Lenore where they've done this. First school we went to, it's called Roanoke Elementary. And the kids there, the way they did it at first is they just gave the kids what they called homework which was to go and do something on their own that they never normally did and report back to the class, right? And these were nine-year-olds. And speaking to these kids, the first thing that was clear to me is that these nine-year-olds had never done anything on their own, right? So some of them, it was, some, one of them baked a cake for her mother. One of them went to the local river and cleared up the litter because she thought it was killing the turtles. Um, one little boy, I'll never forget him, he's a little redheaded boy, said, there's a rope in my garden, and I climbed the rope. And I remember talking to Lenore afterwards and they're saying to me, in what previous generation of children would there have been a rope in a garden and the child had to be assigned homework in order to climb it? We, we've rendered children so helpless. And of course, the pandemic has made this even worse, although you know the restrictions were necessary, but it's had this an even more unfortunate effect on this way. And it was incredible watching these kids grow again. There was one school, there were 14-year-old boys, this big strapping 14-year-old boy who told me that until this program began, his parents never let him out of the house. He said, this is a phrase he used, because of all these kidnappings, there's never been any kidnappings. Well, this is the thing. We instill fear. I notice now with my friends, you know, when their children were like, you know, 10, 12, 13, you could go to somebody's house, but they had to ring the mother and make, you know, they had to meet the mother and make a, an arrangement. They had to know exactly. It's also controlled. I've got this memory and I'm going to share it with you because it's very funny. But see, we grew up in a inner city, um, very poor, very rough inner city suburb of, at the time. Now it's gentrified and it's, you know, worth squillions. But anyway, it was called Glebe. And, you know, my parents were migrants, right? So she had to really kind of mum push us out there and it was against, you know, she would worry about us. And I know a lot of children didn't have the same experience. My mother was brave and really wanted us to uh, get out there and, and integrate, if you like. But anyway, we lived on this street where a whole lot of houses had been shut down by the council and hippies moved in, squatters, if you like, you know. Well, of course, mm. I was always so curious and playing out on the street. I met these squatters and I met these their children. Mm. And it was so different to the migrant experience, to the way we were living our lives versus people 
people that, you know, getting electricity from somebody's house. But anyway, one time, one of the mothers, Noni, invited my sister and I to a birthday party of her children, right? And my mother, all credit to her, she dressed us up, she gave us a gift, we had to walk up the street all by ourselves, (laughs) knocked on the door, Noni opened and everyone was nude. Oh, my God. Wow, okay. <laughs> now, to Jesus. me, that was so curious. My sister started to cry and went back home. But I <laughs> stayed, right, because I was so curious. And it didn't throw my mother. She just said that that's just another mm. experience in life. But, you know, so none of this happens anymore. None of it. You don't see people a whole lot different to you anymore because it's so controlled. What we've had is the psychological and physical confinement of our children, which has profoundly thwarted their ability to form healthy attention and focus. So the design of our school system is disastrous. Not uh, The teachers have argued against it very wisely. The way the school system has been redesigned has also been disastrous for this. So it's interesting because very often when I say to people, look, I wrote this book about why we're struggling to focus and pay attention. Immediately what people want to ask me about is technology. And a big part of the book is about Mm. technology and our relationship with it and, and how we can get our brains back. But it's interesting because I think what you're getting at there is something that's really important now. We are being exposed to technology that is specifically designed to hack and hijack our attention. And it's working, as we can all see. But there's another element to that that's as important. That technology arrived at a moment when it's like our immune system was already down. Mm. There were actually many factors that were happening that were reducing our ability to focus and pay attention anyway. And I think you've got to see it as the combination of these two factors. There's both the invasive technology and all the factors, the 11 other factors that I write about in the book that were making us so vulnerable to this in the first place. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You talk about some of the, the factors that, you, that, sure. that, are, that are covered in the book. Being interrupted all the time is, I think, fantastic in terms of work. Talk to me about that. It was so interesting learning about this. The first person who taught me about it was a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who's one of the most important neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about your brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one thing at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain hasn't changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change in our lifetimes. Um, This is just your limit. You can think about one thing at a time. 
But what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow seven different forms of media at the same time. Mm. So what they do, Professor Miller's colleagues, is they get people into labs and they study them. They get them to do what they think is doing lots of things at the same time. And what they discover invariably is that when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time, you're in fact juggling. Now your consciousness papers over it to give a seamless experience of consciousness, but you are juggling between different things, right? You're focusing, refocusing, refocusing, refocusing. And it turns out that comes with a huge cost to your attention and your ability to think. And obviously they've studied this very carefully and it turns out that feels like it must be a small effect. It turns out to be a huge effect. I'll give you two examples of studies that have shown this. Hewlett-Packard, the company that make printers, they, they, they split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do your task for whatever you have to do. Yeah. And, this, and when you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, do your task and you're going to receive texts and emails. And at the end of it, they tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted texted on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of what that means, if you or me got stoned together now, if we just smoked a fat spliff, we our IQ would go down by five points. So it's double the effect of getting stoned, at least in the short term, just being interrupted, which is happening to us all the time, right? You would be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time, than you would be sitting at your desk not getting stoned and being constantly interrupted. That's how bad the effect but, is. But, you know, but there is an expectation that we have to respond immediately. So I've taken to having a little afternoon nap on the weekends, right? I think of, I'm of an age where I can do that quite comfortably and without any guilt. At any age, no shame. <laughs> without any go, oh, I love it, right? Um, and I always turn my phone off and blah, blah, blah. My sister was trying to contact me. She phoned me twice. I didn't answer, of course. Then she sent me a text, are you okay? Where are you? And that's because I didn't respond within an hour, well, within a couple of minutes, and I responded an hour and a half later. So all the tools around us want us to respond right now. You're totally right. And, and we've got to understand that this is causing a huge cost to us. There's a guy called Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon who found that if you are interrupted, it takes 23 minutes to get back to the same level of focus you had mm. before you were interrupted. But most people are never getting 23 minutes. We're constantly operating at a very diminished level of bandwidth. And I think what you said about your sister is so interesting, Cheryl, because there's two levels at which we've got to respond to this, right? All of the 12 causes that I write about, but let's take this one for an example. So one level is a personal one, right? There are things we can do as individuals to protect ourselves. Um, as isolated individuals, lots of things we can do. So for example, you can explain to your sister, you think it only takes a second for me to read your text and respond. Actually, it takes 23 minutes of, mm. for me to get back to the level of focus I had before. Uh, so actually you're taking a lot of, you, you think a text that takes 10 seconds actually takes 23 minutes, right? And then if you're back and forth, back and forth throughout the day, they're basically raiding your attention for the day. So there's another, I'll give you another individual example. Obviously, I talk about lots in the book. You can't see it from here, Cheryl, but in the corner of my room, I've got something called a K-safe. It's a plastic safe. Um, you take the lid off, put your phone in it, you put the lid on, you turn the dial at the top of the safe, and you can lock your phone away for anything from five minutes to a week, right? Oh, and wow. the only way you can get your phone out is just to smash the I mean, you could smash <laughs> it if it was an emergency, but you'd have to buy, buy another one, and they're pretty expensive. They're like 70 pounds, right? I've I never heard more. of them. I do this for four hours a day, 
massively restored my attention and focus. It's why I've read all the books we were talking about at the start of this podcast. But we've got to have another level at which we respond to this because lots of people hearing me say what I just said, that I do that for four hours a day, are going to totally understandably and rightly experience me saying that as if me going, they can think I'm going, well, you should do that too. And for a lot of people, that would be like me walking up to a homeless person in the street and saying, mate, do you know what would make you feel much better? Would be if you went into that fancy restaurant over there and you had a really nice steak. Have you considered it? Entirely understandably, that guy's going to go, I'd love to have the nice steak. I can't do that, right? We currently live in a big gap between what we want to do and what we feel we can do. So what we have to have is another level of response to this, which is where collectively we deal with these factors. Let me give you a very clear example when it comes to distraction and exactly what you're talking about. In France, in 2018, they were having a really big crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think you need me to translate. And the (laughs) French government, under pressure from trade unions, set up a commission to figure out, well, what's going on? It's run by a guy called Bruno Metling, who is the head of Orange, their biggest telecoms company. And what he discovered is that 35% of French workers felt they could never turn off their phones or stop checking their email because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't respond, they'd be in trouble, right? So you you can give those people all the sweet self-help lectures you want about the benefits of unplugging. They can't do it, right? For obvious reasons. And it was causing them to be exhausted and, and, and depleted. So, I mean, I remember when we were kids, you know, the only people who were on call were the prime minister and doctors. And even doctors weren't on call all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Now, almost half the economy is on call all the time. Mm-hmm. So the French government introduced a very simple reform. It's called the right to disconnect. And it says that every worker has a legal right to two things. You have a legal right to have your work hours written down and defined. And you have a legal right to not have to check your phone or your email outside work hours. So I went to Paris after this reform had been introduced. Big firms get fined a fortune. One company got fined 70,000 euros while I was there because they tried to get a worker to check his email an hour after his work hours ended, right? Now you can see how the right to disconnect, which is obviously one of many collective solutions, is something we can all fight for together. They're not going to do that on their own. If we don't band together and fight for it, they're not going to introduce it. But it's something, we, it's a collective change we can fight for that makes it possible for us to make some of the individual changes that we want to make anyway. And I think for all of the 12 causes that I write about, there's this double level of how we have to respond. There's the individual solution and the collective solution that makes it more easy to pursue the individual solution. Yeah, wow. I already do that in my business. I won't email anyone before nine or after five. Um, it'd have to be pretty serious for me. I mean, I've never been awake before nine, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. know about, that, about anyone then because well, I've been conscious. But. This is good because it's a good segue because I want to talk about sleep. Yeah, yeah. So I interviewed some of the leading experts in the world about sleep. And this, I think, is one of the biggest of the 12 causes that I wrote about. I think it's one of the two or three biggest. And one of the people who really helped me to understand this is a man called Dr. Charles Seisler, who's the leading expert on sleep at Harvard Medical School, an amazing man who's made a whole series of breakthroughs in our understanding of sleep. And I remember being in his teaching room at Harvard and, and he explained to me this experiment he'd done just a few labs down. It's really chilling. So they basically combined two forms of technology that hadn't been combined before. There's a kind of technology that, or not in the context of studying sleep, there's a technology that can study what you're looking at with your eyes, scans your eyes. And there's a technology, obviously, which we all know about, which can scan your brain and see what's happening in your brain. 
So what they did is they got tired people and they put them and they scanned both. And what was fascinating was if you're tired, what he discovered is you appear to be awake. You're looking around you. You're speaking just as clearly as you and I are speaking now. But whole parts of your brain have gone to sleep. He discovered that significant parts of your brain can be asleep and yet you appear to be conscious. You appear to be awake. In fact, if you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention and ability to focus is as impaired as if you had got legally drunk. If you sleep for just six hours a night for a week, again, you get to that state where you are as impaired as if you were legally drunk. And this is important just to quickly want to think about it because we know the amount we sleep has enormously declined. It's declined by 20% in the last century. Children sleep on average 80 minutes less than they did 100 years ago. 23% of British people only sleep five hours a night. Now, even as Professor Seisler said to me, even if nothing else had happened, even if there had been no other changes in our society, that alone would have caused an enormous attention crisis. Well, I think sleep... Now, I'm the world's best sleeper. I'm early to bed, <laughs> early to rise, seven, eight hours. Wow. And if I get less than seven hours, I am teary, I'm emotional, I can't work at my capacity, honestly. And then I've realised, and I've noticed this with friends with children, if they're bad sleepers, generally those kids are unhappy. They're always crying. They're, you know, whingy kind of children because they've never really caught up where when you have kids that sleep well, they seem to be happier children. And that just, to me, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, and, and it's partly because, and I learned about this particularly from an amazing woman named Professor Roxanne Prichard, who's a, who I interviewed at the University of Minneapolis. It's because of what is happening when you sleep. So the way she put it to me is, when you're sleeping, you're repairing. It used to be thought that sleep was a passive process, that you know, your brain was just inert when you were sleeping in the same way that my arm muscles are inert now because I'm not using them. And in fact, are inert pretty much all the time. (laughs) It used to be thought that they were unlike yours. It used to be thought that that's what the brain was like when you were asleep. In fact, sleep is a highly active process. A whole series of physical processes are happening when you sleep. So your cerebral fluid spinal channels uh, open up, a, a watery fluid rinses through your brain. It takes away all uh, the way Professor Rick Prashad puts it is it clears out all the brain cell poop that, that builds up throughout the day. It takes it down to your liver and washes it away. Your brain needs these processes of repairing and healing. And when you deprive your brain or your children's brain of sleep, your brain just simply can't function as well. Mm. And there's overwhelming evidence for this. And this is a huge factor in why we're struggling to focus Mm. and pay attention. And, you know, I don't want to put any more pressure on parents because I think they have enough. But really, if you can get those good sleep practices in when they're little, which my mother did so well, then you're really set for life, I think. I think once you solve sleep problems, then you have the energy and the mindset to actually tackle other issues, you know. Part of the problem, though, is that you've got, uh, I think you're absolutely right, uh, you've got, I don't know, you agree with this, parents are operating in a context they didn't design. Yeah. And you have all sorts of factors in the way we live that are ruining our kids' attention and ruining their ability to sleep. An obvious one is we have technologies that are designed mm-hmm. to hack our children's attention and focus. That's the explicit purpose of the way they're designed, the programs we run on them. And if you're exposed to that blue light, 
before you go to sleep, it wakes you up. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, those parents are really in a struggle with things that are, are designed to make their kids demand them. Or even if you think about the diet we eat, the food we eat. Well, I um, wanted to get onto food, you know. Sure. I mean, you talk about that in your book as well. Talk to me about that. So I want to stress, <laughs> it's funny, sometimes people say that I've written self-help books and I was slightly, I don't mind that, but I, one of the issues I have with self-help books is the whole format is, you know, the, the, the writer goes, well, dear reader, I had this problem mm. and I discovered this solution and look, it cured me. And now you can, you can do it too. And uh, one of the reasons I feel particularly ridiculous talking to self help ways that oh, you can't see this, but literally behind the laptop I'm speaking to you is a large McDonald's bag, um, <laughs> which I ate like <laughs> almost immediately prior to talking to you while you were doing your healthy boxing. I was eating nine nuggets and a, and a large uh, Big Mac, but and this is precisely because these things are very deep in our culture and it is hard to overcome them at the level of the individual. And we have to think about how we overcome them at the level of the society as well as at the individual level of the individual. But so this is one of the fact, one of the 12 factors I write about that really surprised me. There's this new um, growing scientific field called nutritional psychiatry that studies how what we eat affects our brains and, and our mental health and phenomena like attention. And I interviewed several of the leading figures in, in the world of nutritional psychiatry, like Dr. Umadevi Uma Naidu, who's at Boston in Boston, or Dr. Drew Ramsey, um, who's in New York. And one of the things I learned is there's three factors in the Western diet, the kind of food we eat, that are profoundly damaging our ability to pay attention. First factor is very simple. Um, Drew Pinnock, who's one of the leading nutritionists in Britain, told me a lot about this. Is and the evidence for this is scientific evidence is overwhelming. The way we eat causes energy spikes and energy crashes, and those crashes leave you with brain fog where it's very hard to focus. So imagine you wake up in the morning and you eat frosties and white bread. That releases an enormous amount of glucose. Woom, you feel great. And then half an hour later, you're sitting at your desk and you feel a profound brain slump. Because Drew gave me a great metaphor. He said, it's like you put rocket fuel into a mini, right? It's going to go really fast for a minute and then it's going to putter out and stop. Whereas if you eat the equivalent of putting the right fuel in the mini, if you eat a diet that releases energy steadily throughout the day. You don't get those peaks and troughs, but we're all, and I include myself in this to be sure, I'm literally in one of those roller coasters as we speak. We live in a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes, which causes periods in which it's very hard to focus and pay attention. The second is that our diets deprive us of the nutrients that are necessary for our brain to develop properly, our brains mm-hmm. to develop properly. There's a very interesting study in the Netherlands where they assigned split a group of kids into two and they assigned one of the kids carried on eating normally, normal by our standards. And the second group was assigned to basically cut out all processed and synthetic food, the kind of shit we eat. And what they found is there was an enormous improvement in attention and focus on the kids who changed their diet. The third way is that our diet, it's not just that our diet lacks nutrients, our diet also lacks, sorry, it contains things that act on us like drugs and amp us up. So there was a a study done here in Britain in Southampton in 2007. They got a group of 138 kids and they split them into two groups. And one group was given um, a cocktail that contained all sorts of synthetic dyes and things that are in like M&Ms, kind of things we eat all the time. Certainly I do. And the second was just given water or some 
you know, some, mm. some neutral drink. And the kids who drank the synthetic dyes were way more likely to become manic, run around, go crazy. Um, in fact, that led to, in Britain, the banning of a lot of these synthetic dyes, although they're not banned in Australia and the United States and lots of other places. So you can see how the way we eat is profoundly affecting these factors as well. But again, and this is very true of the invasive technology and other factors, that can sound like a sort of simplistic, well, just change your diet then. But of course, you know, we live in a machine that trains us to associate positive feelings with these unhealthy foods. More 18 month old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name in the United States. Mm. Certainly for me, for so many people, we live in a food industry where it is this attention rating food is cheap, plentiful, and very and designed to be very attractive. And the food that feeds your brain and, and helps you develop attention is expensive. It's harder to get. There isn't an advertising industry constantly saying, hey, why don't you try a carrot? I think there's a couple of factors. There's the junk diet that's that's a problem, and we've known that for a long time. But I think also, too, with social media, we're going into food fads, F-A-D-S, food fads that are really bad for us and that are really, I think, creating terrible habits in terms of diet. And usually they're not based on science. They're not based on nutrition. You know, somebody's decided that, you know, drinking smoothies all day is the way to go. Well, that's not actually true. We need some solid food. And so you've got both. Oh, you. Solid food advocate, are you? It's like I was reading about this nutritionist who says that people should only eat beef. Yeah. And then I saw that and I saw that people pay like three hundred dollars to have a consultation with it. I said, give me the three hundred dollars. I'll tell you what she'll say. Eat beef. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're but I think what this fadism is, and you're absolutely right, it's very harmful. But what this fadism is, and this is true in many of the factors that I talk about in relation to attention, because we feel so out of control. What we're so hungry for is a boundary for somebody to step in and, you know, and I empathize with that. Although, of course, I don't think this fad diet is the answer. Yeah. And and the evidence on this is very clear. But I do think there's an interesting analogy between obesity and the attention crisis. If you look at a picture of a beach in Sydney, in, you know, Brighton, in London, near London, anywhere in the Western world in, say, 1970, it's really striking when you look at those pictures because everyone, is what we would call slim or buff. Literally everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and when you look at it first, you think, well, did the fat people just stay at home that day? And you're like, no. Mm-hmm. And I say this as a fat person myself. Actually, that's not what happened. What happened is we and we have good figures on this. There was almost no obesity in 1970, right? In the entire Western world. What happened? You know, you think about all the stigmatizing things people say about obesity that people are lazy or greedy or whatever it's not that people suddenly became lazy and greedy all over the western world what happened is there were profound changes in the way we live the food we ate completely transformed from mostly eating fresh and nutritious food to almost in, to eating predominantly processed and ultra processed food which is a completely different thing and we designed our cities in such a way that it's very hard to walk or bike anywhere you you have to clamber into a steel box to get anywhere And those changes produce the obesity crisis. The reason I think this is important in relation to this conversation beyond the ways in which our diet specifically affects our attention is I think something very similar is happening with our attention. There have been profound changes in the way we live and it is degrading our ability to focus and pay attention. And my worry is the way we responded to the obesity crisis was a disaster. What we had is a social problem that we dealt with by blaming 
entirely blaming individuals mm. and getting individuals to torture themselves. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. And actually what we know is 19 out of 20 diets, people regain the weight within one to five years because you go back into the society where it's very hard to maintain a healthy weight, right? Mm. Um, now that's not the fault of the individual. That's a systemic problem. If all the energy that we had put into torturing ourselves, starving ourselves over the past 50 years had instead been put into political pressure to change the food supply and make sure we have cities we can walk and bike around, which is what they did in the Netherlands, we would have much less obesity. The Netherlands did that. They spend their energy on the food supply and making sure everywhere had a bike lane. And they have low levels of obesity in the Netherlands as a result. And, and everyone gets access. Themselves. Yeah, they get access exactly. to good food. But, but my worry is, I think we are responding to the attention crisis in the same wrong way we responded to the obesity mm. crisis. So huge numbers of people are experiencing this struggle to focus and pay attention. And I stress there are lots of individual things that people can do. I talk about lots of them in the book. I do them. I'm in favor of them. They're a really good and important thing. If that's the only thing we do, I've got a level with people. We're not going to solve this problem no. because these problems are getting worse, right? And um, if we respond with just digital diet books, that's not going to solve our problem. Think about something like the invasive technologies that are hacking our attention, those technologies, if we don't regulate them, are going to become more invasive. Don't listen to me on that. Listen to one of the biggest investors in these technologies, Paul Graham, huge figure in Silicon Valley, who said the world is going to become more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40 years. Facebook has already patented a technology that could read your emotions through your webcam and through the camera on your phone. Now, at the moment, there's a race. We've got these increasingly invasive technologies to one side, which will get worse and worse if we don't stop them. On the other side, there has to be a movement of people who are determined to defend our attention and, de and defend our children's attention and take on these forces. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder on us all day. Mm -hmm. And then that person is saying to us, do you know what, mate? Uh, you might want to learn how to meditate. Uh, then you wouldn't be scratching so much. Now, I'm in favor of meditation, but someone's got to stop the person who is pouring the itching powder on us all day. We've got to collectively take action to do this in the same way that we needed and still need a feminist movement so women could regain control of their bodies and their lives. I think we need an attention movement to regain control of our attention. And it requires a real shift in psychology. We need to stop blaming ourselves and thinking it's just a failure of willpower or a sign of weakness. And we also need to stop only demanding small solutions. The small steps are really important and I've taken them myself. But also we need to remind ourselves, we are not medieval peasants begging at the, the table of King Zuckerberg for him to toss us a few little crumbs of attention. We are the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds and we can take them back from the forces that are stealing them. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, I'm going to have to wrap it up. But before I do that, we took a different, uh, well, a slightly different style to our podcast this time. We started off with book recommendations, which I'm thinking I'm going to explore as a possibility that we go that way. Uh -huh. right. Yeah, yeah. And what we didn't do is we didn't introduce you. So I'm going uh -huh. to do that at the end, right? So we're uh -huh. switching things around a bit. Because I want to say that the book that we're discussing at the moment was Stolen Focus, but also that you're a journalist who is written from so many leading newspapers and magazine. Uh, Johan has given two TED Talks, which have been 
viewed for more than 80 million times. Is that right? <laughs> you know, I had a funny experience with this. Uh, one of my TED Talks is about, talks about an experiment. I can swear on your podcast, can't yes, I? Yes, you can, yeah. Especially Australians. I've never had an yeah. Australian podcast, so they didn't let me swear. <laughs> uh, so I was in a, uh, one, of my podca- one of my TED Talks talks a bit about an experiment that involves some rats that tell us something about addiction. And I was in this black cab, a black taxi in London. And the driver said to me, I recognise you. And I said, I've just got a generic face. Uh, you know, I don't think you do. He said, no, no, I recognise you. And he kept trying to guess who I was. And it was the increasingly bizarre guesses. Anyway, I paid him and I got out. And then he drove off. And then suddenly he drove back past me and said, I know who you are. You're the addicted rats, TED Talk cunt. <laughs> and I was like, that's right. I yeah, that's me. Ted Talk cunt. That should actually just be my epitaph, right? <laughs> Ted Talk cunt. Um, but yeah, my Ted Talks have reviewed lots of times. It's All right. Nice. Well, I'm going to let you go. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, uh, I always love talking to you, Cheryl. It's such a joy. It and really I will is. summon your debt because of d- dirt music. It's such a great. Uh, I meant to say, or my publishers will tase me. Anyone who wants any more information about where to get the physical book, the ebook, or the uh, audio book can go to www.stolenfocusbook.com where they can find out what Hillary Clinton, Stephen Fry, and lots of other people have said about the book. Um, Johan, I really hope to see you in person. Um, in oh the- my God, we're going to yeah. do this in person yeah. one day. Yeah. Next we- time. Take care, Love my friends. Stuff. See ya. Hooray. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.